Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. If a race has no history, it has no worthwhile tradition. It becomes a negligible factor in the thought of the world, and it stands in danger of being exterminated. opening passage is from a 1926 article in the Journal of Negro History by Carter G. Woodson. He's appealing to educators to dedicate one week in February to teaching about Negro history. And he wanted that week to fall between President Lincoln and Frederick Douglass's birthdays. Now, Woodson is considered the father of the early Black history movement, and his efforts eventually led, as you can imagine, to the Black History Month celebration of African-American achievement. I came across a digital version of his book, The Negro Church, from 1920, as I was preparing to watch a new documentary by a modern giant in African and African-American history, Dr. Henry Louis Gates, Jr. Gates is a prolific author, an Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, and a scholar who leads the Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research at Harvard University. Woodson's alma mater, by the way. And like Woodson, Gates is passionate about understanding how history shapes the present and is eager to making that history accessible. On February 16th, his latest documentary, The Black Church, premiered on PBS. And for Gates, this was a deeply personal story. I've spent my career exploring stories about black life, but there's one I've never told. And it might be the most important one of all. It's the remarkable history of the black church. The title, however, is a bit of a misnomer. The documentary is not about one building or even one faith tradition, and it is ambitious. Spanning four centuries, half a dozen different religions, and several countries. It is also shaped by struggles that emerged within the community. And it features a number of familiar voices, from media mogul Oprah Winfrey to public theologian Cornel West. I don't know how we could have survived as a people without it. We had to have some individual and institutional armor in order to preserve our sanity. It's not a one-sided celebration. The documentary tackles the criticisms and tensions surrounding the church. Where's the African-American church in Black Lives Matter? Where's the African-American church with environmental justice movements? That was Yolanda Pierce, dean of Howard University's School of Divinity. Later in the episode, I talk with Dr. Pierce about the role of women in the Black church, the church mothers, as she calls them. But we begin this week with the filmmakers Stacey Holman and Shayla Harris. The two collaborated directing and producing with Dr. Gates. For both women, telling this story began with listening and learning. 
Our conversation begins with Shayla offering a surprising confessional about her own faith experience. Well, I am not a sort of typical practitioner of the Black Church. I grew up Catholic, which is not <laughs> not the sort of uh, quintessential, you know, rockin' music uh, church experience that um, I think we come to expect from the Black Church. So I was very curious to learn about the Black Church. So I, I kind of came in not really knowing much other than that I've done a lot of films on the Black experience, on African-American history, and this seemed like a really incredible opportunity to look at an institution that I had just really kind of known from the civil rights movement and that activism, but I didn't know any of the long history of the church that had stretched back to the Atlantic slave trade. So for me, it was a really exciting opportunity to learn. That's why I'm a filmmaker is because I get to you know have a crash course in these things that I don't know about and also to work with someone like Dr. Gates, who obviously is at the forefront of covering a lot of this history. And I just knew that that combination was going to be really exciting. Stacy, what, what drew you to this project? Um, first of all, just the subject itself and growing up in Ohio, um, I went to a predominantly white church with my family. However, my grandparents in Southern Ohio, my maternal grandparents, they belong to a small Baptist church. And that really was the seed that was planted in me about just the black church experience. Uh, even though it was very hard sitting through two hour plus services as a kid where you could not do anything, but just sit and stare and pay attention and stay awake. Um, it's those moments and memories that are cemented and really just formed me and formed my, my faith walk. And when I heard and learned that, um, Dr. Gates was doing this series. I was one of the producer directors on Reconstruction. I was like, oh my God, I have to do this. So I was, I put my bid in and was very, um, very thankful and blessed to be part of the series. And like Shayla, I mean, I've had um, the opportunity to tell the African American experience and it's just, I learned so much. Um, just because you spent time in a black church does not mean that you know everything about the black church experience. Now, I am struck, Shayla, as someone who grew up Catholic and in a more, um, a very different style of worshiping. Were you nervous at all about how you would tell this story? You know, I'm often like the insider outsider perspective. And I think um, it's really useful to have that perspective when you're thinking about how to convey a story that maybe everybody doesn't know to an audience. Uh, I can't assume that every person who's going to be watching this has had a Black church experience. And so I think it's mm -hmm. useful to always kind of have that in the back of your mind as you're approaching this, these kinds of subjects and not have those kinds of assumptions about what people know and what they don't know or what they've experienced or what they haven't experienced. Um, so for me, I think it was also really important to convey that wonder and that sort of amazement when you walk into those spaces and convey that sort of that feeling of an embrace, right? When you mm -hmm. walk into a church and um, you feel that community spirit, I think that is something that we definitely wanted to convey. And that's something that, you know, over the course of our film um, was something that resonated with the earliest African Christians, you know, that sense of being able to walk into a space and to be able to like lay their burdens down mm -hmm. literally and process some of what they had been going through and 
you know, we really wanted to kind of immerse people in that sense, like kind of from the beginning. Um, so I think that was something that I was always mindful of in terms of like how to approach the series, what stories we told and how we told them. How did you choose or why did you choose to begin this documentary not in the United States? First of all, we know that the, the church is not monolithic. Um, it's not just one thing. And also, too, when enslaved Africans were brought here, they worshipped a God. They um, understood God. They understood a higher being. And it was important that we start that hour saying just that. And the key thing, I really believe that people will be surprised. A lot of people will be surprised to know. I know I was, is that there was a Muslim footprint with enslaved Africans. We went, we traveled down to Sapelo Island and we visit the cemetery of Balali Muhammad's descendants. The documentary takes viewers to the barrier island off the coast of Georgia, about 60 miles from Savannah. The tiny island is home to Black Muslim history that, frankly, many are just now discovering. Bilali Muhammad was believed to have come from an educated and influential West African Muslim family from present-day Sierra Leone. Kidnapped and enslaved as a teenager, he was sold in the Bahamas and eventually purchased by Thomas Spaulding, who brought Muhammad to Sapelo Island. He was literate in Arabic, Islamic history, and was skilled, becoming a master cultivator of rice. Gates introduces one of Bilali Muhammad's descendants and his legacy on the island. He left a written record of both his attempts to Mm -hmm. reclaim Mm -hmm. and recall what he was remembering of his religious instruction. In other words, he was determined to preserve his identity, this aspect of his identity. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, this was Bilali's daughter, Hmm. and her sons would become very instrumental in the creation of First African Baptist Church on the island. Mm. People descended on Sapelo researchers and writers who were also looking for the African origins right, the of black culture. Link, the, the missing, missing link, link yeah. right? So the stories that they told contributed to wealth of knowledge mm-hmm. about the existence of black Muslims on Georgia's coast. What happened to the descendants of the Muslims? Who were here. Are you descended from a Muslim? I am, actually. I mean, but most people from Sapelo are also descendants. So the practice of Islam did not last very long within the community. Soon people were converted to Christianity. There was a time where there were people who seemed to remember that there might be specific traditions that might be associated with Islam, Mm -hmm. burial practices, Mm -hmm. you know, where graves are facing. There's a lot of east to west orientation that I've seen. One of the things that I think that is the story of black religion in America Mm -hmm. is that um, what enslaved people did in this new context was they attempted to merge and, you know, fuse Mm -hmm these different worlds. Catholicism, that's not part of the series, Skip covers it in his book, but that was also introduced to Africans in the continent of Africa. So we wanted to let people know that, you know, as we see the evolution of the black church, of what we know in North America as the black church, 
there's elements of Africa, there's elements of home, there's elements of worship, there are elements of praise that we see throughout the entire form of worship and understanding who and whom and what God is. Stacy, I was making a short list as I was watching, and there are so many things you cover here. How, as a storyteller, did you make decisions about bringing all of these various topics, these threads, back to the church? Well, one thing is, and I'll just kind of use music as an example, um, where music starts. You have the the spirituals, you have the folk, and that evolves. And that's one thing that we looked at. And we had an amazing, amazing group of um, scholars and who were advisors, uh, many of them, to really help guide us to make sure that we were hitting those marks. So there's a lot of boxes to check when you talk about the Black church. However, how many of those hit all the specific decades and eras and centuries that we are covering in this 400 years? I mean, this is a historical documentary. It's a visual medium. So our archive team was really incredible in really finding images, um, finding um, footage that, you know, we try to really find stuff that no one has ever seen before, but even stuff that people have seen, how can we reinterpret that and how can you use that to really bring new life or insight to that story that will then help us just continue to connect it from hour one to hour three and to hour four. So it was, um, you know, going through and reading a lot and really just seeing the, the key themes and characters. Um, and Shayla can talk about this because this is an hour two and hour four. We talk about um, God as a Negro, you know, black theology. You know, that was being talked about in, you know, the early church. And then you cut to um, hour four and there it is again. You know, as Stacy said, part of the story of looking at this history of the institution over 400 years is recognizing that there are a lot of echoes, right, that keep coming up over and over and over again. Like, like Stacy mentioned, you know, Black theology emerges in the late 19th century, but then has a resurgence, you know, in the Black power era when people are talking mm-hmm. about Black is beautiful in the late 60s. So that was a thread that we connected. And one of the other kind of unifying themes I think that was helpful for us was W.E.B. Du Bois, the famous sociologist, you know, wrote in his exploration of the Black church that it it boiled down to three elements, you know, the preacher, the music, and the frenzy. And so that was also another thread that we kind of kept returning to in each episode and looking at the role of the preacher, looking at the role of music and how it evolved, and the frenzy, which is just the worship practice. What's the frenzy? Well, I think the frenzy is a different thing for each person. Like the frenzy is something you define for yourself, but uh, it basically boils down to the worship experience, like the feeling of God within yourself that that can only be expressed in this sort of external frenzy. And some people call mm-hmm. it the Holy Ghost. Um, some people call it, you know, speaking in tongues. That's how it's uh, been um, sort of manifested in other ways, but it, it manifests itself in a lot of different ways that we explore it in the series. Coming up after the break, I continue my conversation with Shayla Harris and Stacey Holman. The two independent filmmakers teamed up to direct the new four-hour, two-part PBS documentary, The Black Church. This is our story. This is our song. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. If you are just joining, this week we're talking with Stacey Holman and Shayla Harris. The two independent filmmakers teamed up with the historian Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. to produce the PBS documentary, The Black Church. This is our story. This is our song. But despite its name, it's not about one religion or tradition— but rather the cultural institution known as the American Black Church, one that came into existence because of white supremacy and one that continues to evolve. Let's get back to my conversation. I asked Stacy and Shayla to share something they learned while making the documentary, something that changes the way they now see the present. Stacy begins. For me, it's it's the Muslim footprint. I had no idea. I knew we knew God, but I did not know that God was living and breathing and still here through Islam. So that was my biggest aha moment. Yeah, that that definitely was like, whoa, mind blown that everything makes sense now <laughs> moment uh, was learning about the Muslim tradition. But I also didn't know that uh, some of the first uh, black politicians were clergy members. And now after doing this series, I'm like, of course, it makes sense that the the earliest leaders um, after emancipation would come from this institution that had been the sanctuary. And those those people were the best representatives of that community. When you talk about the 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 legacy of a tradition and being able to put the outcome of the Georgia elections, for example, into that context, and you watch this documentary, you get this historical perspective. Can you talk a little bit about what were some of the most important themes that emerged in that last hour? I think for us, the thing that we wanted to reflect in the last hour is that the church is in some ways at a crossroads in terms of where it fits in the society coming off of the like high watermark of the civil rights movement as the Black community uh, has diversified socially, ethnically, 
geographically, the church as an institution has had to evolve to reflect that. And so we see that playing out in conversations around politics, around what kinds of theologies, whether you're talking about prosperity gospel and things like that, or whether you're talking about political engagement on issues like, you know, police brutality and social activism and homosexuality and, and all of these issues um, kept cropping up. And, and of course, race and politics and social justice in America. I mean, those are have always been a part of the story and show that there's still some questions around that and where does the church fit in that conversation. There's an echo in this documentary that neither of you have brought up, which is white supremacy. I feel like it's almost like we don't need to even say it because it's just, it's, it's entrenched in this country. I mean, when you are brought here against your will, that's white supremacy. And it's, it's there until now. If white people are tired of hearing about white supremacy, then certainly black people are tired of experiencing it. Without white supremacy, you don't have black preachers saying God is a Negro. Like there's no reason to make that assertion if they're not saying that in response to something that they're experiencing. And we talk about the threat of that and why that emerges at that particular point in time and why it resurges in the late 60s. That's not an accident. And we also look at the incredible violence that is propagated against the Black church as this sort of symbol of Black independence, Black control, Black agency. And one of the stories, you know, talk about the aha moment is connecting the, the first rebuilding of Mother Emanuel when it's built originally after the Civil War it had been destroyed by the white people in Charleston. And it was rebuilt as a symbol of emancipation. They called it Mother Emanuel, and the Hebrew name refers to God is with us. That was the whole point. And that is the same church where a white supremacist goes in and, and murders nine people who are worshiping their Bible. That's the story of America in a nutshell, that that same church within 150 years, you know, has been attacked twice based on the same ideology. I mean, there's no reason to have a black church without white supremacy. That's the the literal foundation and the structure of the church as this nation of a nation is a sanctuary from that experience. So I think even if we don't say those words so explicitly or use the language of the conversations that we're having right now, it's certainly a thread. Stacy, is there another through line here, one that's focused on women? Um, you cannot talk about the Black experience without talking about women's role, whether it's helping in the kitchen, whether it's helping to usher people in, and most importantly, whether it's at the pulpit. Um, and some of the early women, and even today, are not even allowed on some of these pulpits, which is still unfortunate. Bishop Vashti McKenzie was one of the coolest interviews for me, and just Hearing her talk about, you know, Jarena Lee, whose footsteps and whose shoulders she stands on. Who is that for listeners who don't know who this is? Oh, well, this is the African Methodist Episcopal. Um, and in 1833, Philadelphia, Jarena Lee, she is a woman. She is um, called to preach. She is moved to preach, um, but she is not allowed to preach just for the mere fact that she is a woman. Um, there is a story in which she is um, at a service. There is uh, someone, a male preaching, not going too well. The Holy Spirit hit her where she gets up and she starts preaching and she preaches so impressive and so moved by her preaching. Richard Allen is even taken aback by it. Um, he is a supporter of her being recognized in the AME church, but 
that falls on deaf ears. And it's not until 200 years later that they actually install a female bishop, and that is Bishop Vashti McKenzie. So it takes 200 years, um, but women are are, are still doing it. Um, women are still preaching, regardless of whether or not they're being welcomed into an actual church or welcomed by um, male congregants or male-run church. Um, so it was just it was key to have that voice because, as and I think it's Yolanda Pierce who says, you know, it's 90% made up of women. Did you find yourself struggling with how to tell that story? I don't think we struggled with telling that story at all because everyone we talked to wanted to talk about it. Uh, So, (laughs) you know, there are no shrinking violets of the Black women in the Black church. And so I think that made telling that story helpful, especially when you look at a period in the late 1800s that was known as women's era. They expressed what they called a righteous discontent. You know, they were pushing back on Uh, not having access to that power in the pulpit. And I think one of the things that we wanted to illustrate is that that the pulpit isn't the only place of power, right? That even within the Black church that, you know, helping with the infrastructure and a lot of those women in the late 1800s decided to take their activism and their engagement and the things that they cared about socially and culturally and economically um, to the club women's movement. You know, they took it outside of the church and, and sort of impacted their communities in that way. That's what we have seen over the course of the Black church history is that, you know, the women are not waiting around. You know, the women are have agency and they're doing their own thing. And if they can't find what they need within the church, then they are more than willing to leave it if they have to. I want to talk to you about one of the closing scenes. It really took me by surprise. It was very emotional. It was Dr. Gates taking us back to his childhood church in West Virginia. Well, you know, as Skip would say, you know, this is one of his most personal films. And we were all kind of nervous going back to the church in West Virginia. He hadn't been there in a long time. And it was very much this sort of prodigal son kind of coming home from foreign or wherever he had been off to. And uh, just the warmth of the embrace and just the collectiveness of that community, just like like a day hadn't passed, I think was uh, just so profound and so emotional. And I think that allowed him to go to a place that maybe he didn't expect. After so many years distance from it, I'd finally come to understand more fully the meaning and the magic of the black church. Oh, my girl. I made it. This is where my life in the church started. I was 12 years old, and it was Sunday, and Mama hugged me and she told me she was going to die. And they took her to the hospital. So I went upstairs in my bedroom. I didn't tell anybody. I just prayed. And I told Jesus that if you let my mother live, I'd give my life to Christ. Amen. About three days later, she got better. And she came home. So I got up, looked in the mirror, and went, uh-oh. You know? <laughs> I had made a deal with Jesus, you know. <laughs> you don't mess with God. <laughs> and I came to this church 
every Sunday, and I joined the choir, and I still sing all the hymns. Um, my favorite hymn of all time was Miss Toots' The Prodigal Son. Oh, I believe, I believe, I will go back home. Well, I believe, I believe, I will go back home. I believe, I believe, I will go back home. It sounds like it's such a specific story that we're talking about the Black church, but the themes that we're talking about are so universal that I think that, you know, anybody in our audience, whatever their faith background, if they have a faith background, um, you know, could can resonate, can find something, can find some meaning in it. Mm. That's what we hope people take away from it. It was a privilege and a gift to tell this story. I learned so much. Um, I grew so much. And it's a, and a gift and a privilege to be able to, to share it with everybody. That was producer and director Shayla Harris and series director and producer Stacey Holman. The two are award-winning independent filmmakers who teamed up with the executive producer, Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr., to produce the documentary, The Black Church. Coming up, my conversation with Dr. Yolanda Pierce. She has a new book out that introduces us to her grandmother and the legacy and role of the church mothers, women who have contributed and embody Black theology. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. We just heard filmmakers Shayla Harris and Stacey Holman share their experience producing and directing the new PBS documentary, The Black Church. This is our story. This is our song. It's hosted by Dr. Henry Louis Gates, Jr. Like all human institutions, the Black Church and its leaders have their shortcomings. We were very quick to address racism, but very slow to address sexism and abuse. Today we stand at a crossroads. What will be the future of the black church? Where's the African-American church in Black Lives Matter? Where's the African-American church with environmental justice movements? That last voice is Dr. Yolanda Pierce. She's the dean of Howard University's Divinity School, On the day the documentary premiered on public television, her new book, In My Grandmother's House, Black Women, Faith, and the Stories We Inherit, was released. In the early pages, you meet her as a child at her grandmother's table. And while the story is rooted in her personal experience, Pierce was quick to point out to me that if you're looking for a memoir, you might be disappointed. She uses her personal faith story, her own journey, and her relationship to the elders who raised her, the church mothers, as the frame to make an argument that Black liberation theology must include the wisdom of women without formal training, which is where our conversation begins, the origin story of womanist theology back in the 1970s, 
after Dr. James Cones of Union Theological Seminary publishes Black Theology and Black Power. We see in the 1970s some Black theology being written for the first time, as well as feminist theology. But the Black theology excluded the experiences of women, and the feminist theology excluded the experiences of women of color. So womanist theology was born as a way that Black women were able to take seriously race, class, gender, sexual orientation, all of the realities of their lives and experiences, and create a theology from that. So tell me about the process. What led you to write this book now? So I wanted to interrogate who gets to do theology. That's really the heart of my book. I explain to people it's actually not a memoir. Um, While the stories are drawn from my life, I am not, in fact, trying to tell a comprehensive story of my life. What I want to do, though, is introduce people to my grandmother, and to the church mothers who raised me in my faith. And I wanted them to know who these women were, because for me, they embody the best of the Black theology tradition. The greatest theologians I have ever known are these Black women. They were older Black women. They had no formal education. They certainly had nothing that we would call theological training, by which I mean a divinity school or a seminary or a college. And yet I find myself drawn again and again to their wisdom. So I wrote a book so that people can think about how in their own lives, there are these repositories of theological wisdom they had never considered. I feel like the focus on Black women and their role and contributions to a whole set of areas of life has really been a focus over the last year. So I think that people have been paying attention to the ways in which Black women have helped to shift the political discourse. We can't talk about this prior election without taking seriously the work of someone like Stacey Mm -hmm. um, Abrams and what happened in Georgia and the fact that more Black women have entered into Congress. But for me, that's actually part of the problem. Black women are taken seriously when they do the work for other people. But they are not taken seriously when they are speaking and writing about their own experiences. We would not know who Stacey Abrams is. She is the daughter of ministers. She herself Mm -hmm. has a womanist theological story. But instead, people really talk about her and describe her as a tool or a means to change politics in Georgia. Black women get to own their own stories that are not connected to what we do for white people. Is that part of why you felt the need to write this book now? Absolutely. I think there were a few things happening, uh, certainly socially and and politically, that led me to write this book now. But it really had to do for me fundamentally with who will tell these stories and can we make sure that these stories are inherited, that they're passed down. We are watching as we are losing a generation of our civil rights leaders. We Mm -hmm. have seen some of the major figures of the civil rights movement, um, certainly including some 
someone like John Lewis pass away within these last couple of years. We will see that entire generation honestly um, die with, within the next five to 10 years because of their age, uh, the ones who were fortunate enough to live as long as some of them lived. And so I am very much so concerned with who inherits, who passes down the stories of this amazing leadership. And I want to tell that from the perspective of Black women who were doing the leading, Black women who were creating the theology, and hopefully the inheritance of that by others who are open to these stories of freedom and liberation. Mm. You are the dean of Howard Divinity School. You are mm -hmm. uh, the first person in your family, first generation uh, college graduate. And you're yes. just not a first generation college graduate. You're like a first generation superstar. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> Thank so, you. You're so kind. <laughs> so I'm struck by the fact that you went to an Ivy League. You have attained the credentials and the respect of an academy to be able to introduce the scholarship, which is saying, hey, academy, hey, people, there are other sources of knowledge not Absolutely. drawn from the academy. For me, those accomplishments are only for this purpose, that I am broadening the scope of how we do the work within my academic academic discipline, which happens to be theology. And so the experiences of these African-American women, my grandmother, and then the church mothers, which is a particular designation um, within the tradition in which I grew up, I want to introduce them as important for how we do the work of theology so that we don't only believe that the people who have PhDs get to do theology, but that in fact, the wisdom of the elders are always on the the table for us to expand our knowledge base. I wonder if the dual messaging that's out there, you know, get as much education as you can, be as credentialed so you can compete, has also in some ways led to an internalized diminishing of the wisdom that has been passed on from our mothers. I think that's exactly right. These stories, um, the richness of their theology, uh, the faithfulness of their lives provide unmediated a lens through which we can, for those of us who are members of the Christian community and this particular faith community, not only see ourselves, but really begin to see God. And so we have the concept of the Imago Dei, which is made in the image and likeness of God. And so I affirm that all the time, that all of God's children, all of us, all of humanity are made in God's image and likeness and are beloved by God. But there wasn't a space for me growing up and throughout my academic career to see where Black women fit into that. And so the reason I write this book is to give Black women a chance to explore how they were made in the image and the beauty and the likeness of God to tell their stories, to share part of my own stories, because that is the, the center of my faith. And I don't need that mediated by a theologian who lived 400 years ago. Mm. I want to allow these women to speak for themselves. You mentioned the church mothers. Tell me who the church mothers are. So within the Holiness Pentecostal tradition, there would be a mother's board. It was a, a group within the church. The church mothers were often older 
elder women. They may or may not have had children. But what was clear was that they had reached a certain age. And with that certain age was the assumption that there was a wisdom uh, to them, a a dignified regal presence. In my tradition, they often um, dressed all in white every Sunday. And so these church mothers were the real power dealers and the power brokers in the church. Mm. I watched these older Black women wheel and deal in significant power. Mm -hmm. And they were the repository of wisdom, but they were also spiritual workers. They were called to pray. Um, They often led the times of fasting within our church. They prepared the communion elements. And so they had ritualized a religious function. Unfortunately, we've really gotten away from that. And so many churches, even within the Holiness Pentecostal tradition, don't have this anymore. It is something that is dying. And I wanted to tell the story before, in fact, in another generation, we look up and there are no more church mothers or there's no more church mother board. Why is that? One of the forces leading to the demise of the church mother board is um, the glorification. I want to even say the deification of youth in our culture. And so no one wants to be called an elder. No one wants to be a mother. They're happy to be called a deacon or work in some other role or capacity or lead a program or lead a youth program, 60, 65, 70, 75. Even the women who are fortunate enough to live to that age don't even want to admit it or are very much so. (laughs) This is, there is so much truth being spoken right now. (laughs) Or very much so want to hold on to a youthful um, disposition. And then the second thing in terms of the demise of the church mothers and the mother board is that many of these smaller congregations are themselves closing and dying. There is um, a certain kind of emphasis on the black mega church mm. and the black mega church even if it doesn't itself have thousands of members it styles itself after the mega church of 15,000 people or 20,000 people and again where the culture is very much so on the music and and the pastor and 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 all of those things that are wonderful But um, somehow the elders in all of our faith communities, and not just Christianity, I want to argue, the elders in all of our faith community are being overlooked. Mm. Um, They they are passing away without us taking very seriously their stories. In the book, write about the holiness Pentecostal church experience that you had as a young child, which is very different from other traditions. Pentecostalism itself was this fascinating space that allowed the women, particularly in the African-American tradition, a way to step into that pulpit, to stand up and lead. Yes. The holiness Pentecostal tradition in America has been filled with women leaders, Mm -hmm. um, African-American women, white women, uh, Latina women, um, Asian women. They have found um, it a space for their empowerment. I think the reason for that has to do with the emphasis in those traditions on the Holy Spirit. So there's a lot of language within um, Trinitarian Christianity with emphasis on God as Father, um, Jesus as Son. But the Holy Spirit can be rendered in feminine terms. And so I 
think so many women found the Holy Spirit empowering, found a place where they could call on the comfort of the Holy Spirit to justify their leadership, to mm. empower them to preach, to teach, to minister. So you have a great number of women leaders within the holiness Pentecostal tradition going so far even to found their own churches and denominations to say, if there is no space for us within these other denominations, because men are excluding us, we will find a place of our own. We will create our own table. And so they did. And so you have someone like Mother Ida Mae Robinson, Mm -hmm. um, again, a church mother who founded her own denomination and ordained herself and ordained other women uh, to the position of leadership. And that is a denomination that is still with us today. There might be a bit of a disconnect between who's in the pews and who's behind the pulpit. Absolutely. The the disconnect is actually very startling. Something like 80 to 90% of the membership of Black churches are Black women, but um, it's the reverse for the leadership. That something like 75-80% of the senior pastor, the, the main leader of the congregation are Black men. And so even though many Black women have leadership roles when it comes to the senior pastor position, the senior leadership position, that is often a Black man. So what you would see on a Sunday morning, pre-COVID, if you entered almost any African-American church, a small one of 100 people or a large one of 1,000 or 10,000 people, is a congregation of mainly women with men on the mic. And so the church mother role was a role that was actually essential. It, It had a name. It indicated that this woman was a leader. She was the most senior woman leader within the congregation. So I am happy, yes, that so many African-American women have different positions. They are doing uh, church education. They're, they're doing social outreach. Many of them are leading the bereavement ministries or leading the, the various ways um, that the church outreaches to the community. They are doing justice work um, as an arm of the church. But we still see fundamentally that the senior pastor role is an African-American man. So to tell the story of my grandmother and these church mothers was to help us to think about how Black women have wielded power even when they have not had the position. In the book, you you take on a you know in a chapter you you know I think it's entitled gratitude you 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 talk about the gratefulness the the appreciation for having this this institution and you you Mm -hmm. turn to the present and you turn to the future (laughs) and I want to turn to that for a moment give us a little sense of what you want to see and what your criticism is one of the things that I am most grateful for as a child who grew up in this church is that the church was a learning laboratory for me. And children are encouraged to participate very, very early on in the church. And um, they're given major things to do. This is an institution that I love and of which I am still a part. But I want to offer a loving critique 
of um, the patriarchy, um, the sexism, um, I would add to that um, homophobia and all, all of the other isms that, that we could possibly uh, chat about today um, that are deeply embedded in what is a theologically conservative institution. The Black church is liberal in terms of social issues, but it is a deeply conservative theological movement. And so I think you see that within the pages um, of the book that I pay homage to um, all that is lovely and kind that I experience who that, that has made me the person that I am today. But I also want to be very, very clear about the fault lines and to say that you can hold that tension together, that you can love something like a faith, like, like your religion, and you can also call it to be a better version of itself. I love the Black church, but it has been guilty of theological malpractice at times. Are you concerned at all about at this time, in this moment, from within the community, resistance, or is that chapter of attempting to quiet the criticisms internally, has that faded? So, no, I, I'm not at all concerned about the critique that will come to bear on me um, because I think that my life has been a faithful witness. At a certain point, you know, um, you, you show people the receipts. And so I've worked to make the church better, even as I'm not afraid to critique where it has been wrong and where it has fallen short. Um, I write um, a little bit about leaving a place um, for people of faith, sometimes needing to make a decision. Do, do I leave um, my faith for another faith or do I just leave faith in, in, in general? I'm a person who has chosen to stay. That is 100% my choice. Um, and because I've chosen to stay, I am committed to making the Christian faith a more liberatory space for all people who choose it. Um, but I cannot do that if I'm not willing to say what's wrong, where, where has it been oppressive? Do you consider yourself one of the church grandmothers? I'm not a church grandmother, but one day I hope to be a church mother, which is to say that one day, let's say 20 <laughs> years from now, I hope that I can embrace um, aging. I hope that I can embrace the wisdom that comes along with it. I want to one day be the woman dressed in white, sitting on the second or third pew, having um finished my career and, and, and retired, and that now what I see as, as the next act in my life is just to love with tenderness and gentleness um, all of the members of a church body. For me, that is the ultimate calling uh, to be a mother, to be a midwife, to be a maternal figure helping to usher in the next generation of faithful witnesses. Dr. Yolanda Pierce is a professor and the dean at Howard University's Divinity School in Washington, D.C. She is the author of In My Grandmother's House, Black Women, Faith, and the Stories We Inherit. That's all for this week's show. A special thanks to our producers, Kimberly Winston and Kevin McCarthy. A special shout out to our founder, Maureen Fiedler and MC Yogi for our theme music. If you missed any portion, the entire episode is available to stream at interfaithradio.org. 
And hey, while you're there, subscribe to the podcast, sign up for our weekly newsletter, and learn more about the ways you can support Interfaith Voices. Wherever you are, I hope you are safe and stay connected. See you next week. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan.